0: Mark chapter 9 today, a message I call the cross, a child, and a cup of water. Mark chapter 9 and verse 30, Then they departed from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know it. For he taught his disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And after he is killed, he will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying and were afraid to ask Him. Remember that during this time, Jesus is entering into those last few months of His active ministry of His time uh, on this earth. Uh, He's toured the region around the Sea of Galilee. He's gone, made several trips up, up into the very Gentile areas to the north and spent a lot of time up there. He has performed miracle after miracle after miracle. He's preached message after message after message. He's cast out demons. They've seen Him transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration. All those things have happened. But now notice that Jesus is making that last time through Galilee. And He's doing His best to avoid the crowds. He's trying to spend some time with his disciples. It's a good time for us to remember this morning that Jesus Christ sent us out to make disciples. Uh, It wasn't just about being saved, although that is essential and it's so vital and so important. The most important decision that anyone will ever make in their life is to receive Jesus Christ as their Savior. If you haven't done that, I plead with you today as the ambassador that God has called us to be. I plead with you, be reconciled to God. But once that decision has happened, it's not over because God wants you to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus Christ. To be a follower then is to follow Him in baptism, to find a church and be a part of it. And then to grow in our faith and our understanding of the Scripture. And we see that playing out in Acts chapter 2 and verse 41. They that gladly received the Word, that is they were saved, were baptized in that order. In that order. And I'll remind you again as I have so many times that the word baptized in Scripture refers to immersion. They were were saved. They received the Word. They were immersed in water. And then they were added unto the church. About 3,000 of them in one day. And they continued steadfastly then in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in the breaking of bread and prayers. You see, we are in the disciple making business. And Jesus was calling these 12 disciples in our text, gathering them together, for some very important truth in this critical time as he was preparing them for that task of global discipleship. Go into all the world and make disciples. During this critical time, these men were distracted. Jesus was teaching. They weren't getting what he was saying, and we've seen that again and again. We aren't left to wonder in this case what was getting in the way. Verse 33 He came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What was it that you disputed among yourselves along the road? But they kept silent, for on the road they had disputed among themselves who would be the greatest. Who would be the greatest? This is an issue that is going to erupt again and again and again at this critical time. Jesus headed toward Jerusalem for that last trip that he was going to make there. In that critical time, again and again and again, this was going to come up. Who's going to be the greatest? One writer called it, and excuse me for the graphic description, but I thought it was a very accurate way of describing it. He said they had a boil in their hearts you ever had a boil you know how painful it is it's something that just kept erupting again and again and again it was burning in their hearts and it was keeping them from hearing what Jesus was gonna to have to say we'll see it again in Mark chapter 10 just a few passages They're going to be talking about seating arrangements. Who's going to be on your left hand and who's going to be on your right hand? Folk, this is a simple problem of human pride. We need to name it, call it exactly what it is. This was a problem of pride. If I ask you today, what was the first sin that ever happened in this entire universe? The sin was pride. It was in Lucifer, who was the son of the morning, the worship leader, beautiful, talented leader of all of the angels. Not content with his own position, he decided to usurp the very position of God. Pride, pride was the first sin. We may not put these things together very often, but wherever pride takes control of us, we are in fact wresting the leadership of our life away from God. Putting ourselves, in a sense, in His position. Pride does that to us. We don't know what it caused all of this or why it surfaced at this time. Maybe it was Jesus taking Peter, James, and John up on the mountain where they saw Him transfigured while the others were left behind. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was Simon Peter getting to walk out on the water with Jesus. Maybe that was it. Maybe it was John, the disciple whom Jesus loved. I, I might have wondered if they, they didn't get tired of hearing that a little bit. Whatever the cause, this problem was in all their hearts. be easy for us to point a finger at these men and wonder, how could they walk with Jesus for three years Listen to Jesus. See all that they've seen. Do all that they did. How could they let pride get in their hearts? But While we're asking that question this morning, let's look at those other fingers pointing back at us as we're pointing at them. How do we let it get in our hearts? Because we all fight the same battle. It works on us. It's not necessarily the attitude that we're better than everybody else or that we're greater than everybody else. It is simply a matter of of selfishness, of self-centeredness, of beginning to think about who's going to be in charge or who's going to make the decisions or who is going to be able to determine the direction. Pride brings a sense of entitlement as if we deserve... This It changes a Christian faith and message to be about us instead of about Him. Pride. Jesus was headed to Jerusalem. The disciples were thinking that this was it. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They knew about the promises that He was going to usher in the kingdom that everlasting kingdom. They had watched some of the miracles that He had performed, and we just can't help but think this morning of the mighty demonstrations of power that they had seen. They had seen Him walk on the water. That was a neat deal. They had seen Him calm the wind and the waves, so that even the elements of the storm obeyed His voice in an instant. They were out in the middle of the lake. One instant, the next moment, the Bible says they were on the shore, He suspended the laws of physics. They'd seen it. They'd watched Him multiply food and feed the thousands. They'd seen Him raise the dead. They watched as a crowd of people began to try to kill Him. The Bible says He just walked out of them. It was like they couldn't even see Him. How are you going to defeat such a man with that kind of power? They had every reason to expect in going to Jerusalem that he would defeat the armies of Rome, usher in Armageddon, wipe it all out, take on the throne, and start the millennial reign, the thousand-year reign of Christ, right on the spot. They had every reason. With a man with that kind of power, with that kind of ability, who could do these kind of things, what army could stand against him? Think about Moses and how that he humbled the land of Egypt and defeated the armies of Egypt. Moses didn't have the kind of power Jesus had. We think about Joshua and how he overcame all of the giants in the land of promise. But you know what? Joshua... Joshua didn't do the things that Jesus had done. We think about Hezekiah in that time when the armies of of Assyria under the mighty general Sennacherib brought 185,000 men army against Israel. And the whole army was wiped out. Wiped out. But Hezekiah... Didn't have the power Jesus had. I love the story of Jehoshaphat and how that he had led uh, in a time when uh, five different nations came against him. And who did he send out to battle? <laughs> the choir. The choir. Not the soldiers, the choir. And that whole army was wiped out. But Jehoshaphat didn't have the power that Jesus had. We could go on and on with that this morning, but I hope you get the point. They had very good reasons. They knew that Jesus was the Messiah. They had seen Him transfigured. They had heard the voice of God. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. They knew the blessing and power of God rested upon Him like no other. They knew the prophecies. They knew the promises. They were thinking, this is it. It's time. And so, who's going to be the right hand guy? What's our role going to be? It's what their mind was on. Who's going to be in charge? Who, what kind of benefits are we going to get? I know at least one of those 12 was asking that. But behind everything that was going on in their mind at that moment in time, it was all about their own rotten pride in their preaching, in their miracle working, in their service. In their sacrifice, even in their casting out of demons and even hearing the voice of God in it all, their pride had surfaced. And it was keeping them from hearing what Jesus had to say. Well, anytime we begin to think about what we want, what we or doing, what somebody else is doing, or what someone else is not doing. We begin to think about what we like or the way we think things should be. Suddenly, we're beginning to cultivate that same spirit of pride and its sibling entitlement that the disciples were feeling. Pride drags us down into the flesh so deeply it closes us off to the work of the Spirit. You see, we can't think selfishly and think spiritually at the same time. So Jesus takes a moment, calls His disciples together around Him. (laughs) Uh, We might call this the first come to Jesus meeting. Hey guys, (laughs) y'all... Oh, come gather around here. Let's sit down and have us a little talk. And he brings up three things. Three things that were designed to counteract this pride. I, I wish I could tell you it had a happy ending and the disciples all repented. They got everything right. But folks, they're going to be fighting this literally up to the night that Jesus died. It's going to come up again. Three things cross, a child, and a cup of water. Three things. See how they play out. Verse 31, He taught His disciples and said to them, The Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of men, and they'll kill Him. And after He is killed, He will rise the third day. But they did not understand this saying, and they were afraid to ask. What Jesus was saying to them did not fit into what they were thinking at all. There was no way that they could picture this incredible man of power and miracles being killed. There was nothing that they had seen that would prepare them to understand that. And when they needed to be listening, they couldn't listen. Our fallen hearts, you see, will always pull us towards selfish ambition, but the cross of Jesus Christ stands as the ultimate example of humility. Paul the Apostle said it best in Philippians chapter 2 when he said, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. But He made Himself of no reputation and took upon Himself the form of a servant and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, He humbled Himself. He humbled Himself. Let this mind be in you. He humbled Himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God has highly exalted Him and given Him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let this mind be in you. He humbled Himself even to the death of the cross. The cross then becomes that ultimate act of humility. It's no wonder Paul would write in Galatians chapter 6 and say, God forbid that I should glory save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. The great hymn writer Isaac Watts perhaps captured the essence of this in an amazing way, probably the best way, outside of Scripture when he wrote, When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, My richest gain I count but lost, and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast, save in the death of Christ my God, of all the vain things that charm me most. I sacrifice him to his blood, see from his hands, his head, his feet. Sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet her thorns, Composed so rich a crown. Where the whole wealth of nature mine. That were present far too small. Love so amazing. So divine. Demands my life. My soul. My all. When I survey the wondrous cross. My richest gain. I count but loss. And pour contempt on all my pride. Whenever we're struggling with pride, we need to take a long look at the cross of Jesus Christ. And remember that he emptied himself of his glory, he had it. If anyone had the right to boast, he did. But instead, he humbled himself, took upon himself the form of a servant and died on the cross for your sins and mine. Pride in the human heart is like water leaving a bathtub. You ever notice how that that water spins into a little vortex? Vortex? You've heard, of course, that in the northern hemisphere it spins one way, and in the southern hemisphere it spins the other way. Not true. (laughs) Debunked. Sorry. Not true. Uh, Scientifically proven. Um, I bring that up today only to remind you that pride is like that. It creates a vortex in our soul, and it sucks us into ourselves. It's not a very big place, by the way. Pride. They had it. And Jesus pointed them to the cross. Secondly, He brings out the little child. He sat down, called the twelve, and said to them, If anyone desires to be first, he shall be last of all and servant of all. Then He took a little child and set him in the midst of them. And when He had taken him in his arms... He said to them, Whoever receives one of these little children in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives not me, but him who sent me. When Jesus called them all together and asked them what they were arguing about, all twelve of them got the lockjaw. Nobody said a word. I wonder how long Jesus let them sit there and not say anything. I, I don't know. But The Bible tells us he got a little child. Don't know where it came from. Don't know who it belonged to. Brought that little boy in and set him down in the midst of them. The word that he uses is what we'd call a toddler. This was one big enough to stand up, but uh, uh, not big enough that you could put on your knee and hold in your arms. How would you like to have God give you a hug? How would you like to have been that little boy as Jesus gathered him up and gave him a hug? A little kid like that sitting down in a circle of 13 grown men and all of them but one looked mad. Have you ever walked into a room where the tension was so thick you could cut it with a knife? Uh, Remember, this was a church that Jesus had gathered together and tension thick like that. There have been a lot of other churches that have had that same experience. Uh, Thank God we're not one of those, but it happens. Maybe you've had that experience where you walked in a church where the tension was just palpable. It's no wonder Jesus gathered this little child up and hugged him up. It's going to be okay. Twelve angry men sitting around that circle. Jesus did not call this child into their midst to tell them that they were acting like kids or that they were being childish. Jesus talked about receiving this child. You know, a little child has no accomplishments, has no ability Uh, Having five kids myself, I've always identified with the fellow who said that a baby is a loud noise on one end and no responsibility on the other. (laughs) That's, That's kids. They are messy. They're helpless. They can't take care of themselves. They're lost. They're dependent and needy. They are everything that every one of us are when we come to Jesus Christ. We are lost. We're helpless. We're hopeless. We're dependent. We don't know what we need. We're crying. We don't even know what's hurting us. We can't even say. We can't take care of ourselves. How long has God been looking at people like that? It's no wonder He called a little child to them. Aren't you glad that God receives us, messes and all? Aren't you glad that He calls us to Him and says, Come unto me, all ye that weary and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Aren't you glad that Jesus receives sinners? The question then that He was putting before them and the issue that He brings to them was not that He's telling them, you're acting like a bunch of kids. No. He showed them that He was receiving this child. This child. A child who hadn't done anything. A child who really couldn't do anything. There's nothing that child could do for Him. Nothing. It was all about what He was going to do for that child he received him knowing that he was needy knowing that he was messy knowing that he would received all of them the exact same way the big issue then is are we going to receive one another in fact in the next chapter Jesus is going to tell them that unless you come to, to me he says as a little child you'll not enter into the kingdom of heaven until you recognize your need, until you recognize your helplessness, until you recognize that you need something—salvation—that you can't provide for yourself. Until you come to Jesus, like that little child, you—you you, you don't come. You don't get to go to heaven. About as serious as it gets. But if God receives us that way, then we need to understand that He also comes to us in little children. He receives us as little children, but He comes to us in His little children. Needy, helpless, dependent, lost, messy, tear up stuff, Oh. Jesus comes to us through his children. So much so that he says, As much as you've done it unto one of the least of these, you've done it unto me. You receive him, you receive me, and when you receive me, you receive the Father. How are we doing then at receiving the children? They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest. Jesus said, Think about the children. Think about the cross. Think about the child. One last thing. Think about the cup. Cup of water. John, or Mark 9, 38. Now John answered him saying, Teacher, we saw someone who does not follow us, casting out demons in your name, and we forbade him because he does not follow us. And I'll be honest with you, I I looked at that a lot of times this week, trying to figure out where in the world that question came from. It just seemed to come out of nowhere, just out of the blue. And and I would understand if it was Simon Peter, but this was John. And uh, Lord, we saw somebody, and and it had to be, it had to be, that Jesus talking about receiving these little children, it had struck a, a nerve in John's heart, had to have. And he remembered how they'd treated somebody else. Somebody else who was casting out demons. Now we know Jesus sent out at least 70 that had the authority over demons. And there was only 12. So it could have been one of those. It could have been just somebody else. We don't know. But they saw somebody else casting out demons in Jesus' name, John says. And we told him to quit. We told him to stop. But Jesus said, Do not forbid him, for no one who works the miracle in my name can soon afterwards speak evil of me, for he who is not against us is on our side. For whoever gives you a cup of water to drink in my name because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. One of the things that pride does for us then is it makes us competitive. And we compete then with one another in two basic ways. We compete over who gets to do something and what they get to do. There's that sense of entitlement. This was something uh, that only we're supposed. They wanted some kind of control about this. No, this is our stuff. You know, the casting out of demons was one of the most sensational of all the miracles. And we've seen that again and again as we've journeyed through uh, Mark's gospel. Time after time, people were astonished. They were astonished that Jesus had that kind of power that even the demons obeyed Him. They were astonished then when the apostles started doing the same thing that Jesus did. And then they found somebody else that was doing it that wasn't hanging out with their clan. And they said, we're going to stop this. Well, Jesus contrasted this with the simplest of tasks. Someone who gives a cup of water in his name. One is a sensational superstar kind of work, casting out demons. One is such a meager work that they'd hardly even notice it. They might say, well, thank you. Go on, never think of it again. Somebody gave me a cup of cold water. Thanks. Thanks. Sensational work, casting out demons, almost overlooked kind of work, giving out water. The great Bible preacher Adrian Rogers once told a story about a family who had twin boys. One was born physically perfect and mentally brilliant, but the other, for whatever reason, was born with severe challenges mentally, and physically. He said when it was time then for them to enter high school, the brilliant child came home after his first semester boasting of how that he had continued his streak of all A's and made the the principal's list, whatever they call it in high school. Oh, they were so proud. Four-point average starting out high school. Four-point average. Oh, they were He said the dad noticed his other son then was down on the floor where he usually was. But this time he had managed to pick up one of his dad's shoes. He was fumbling around with it and held it up to show what he couldn't even articulate because he was so severely handicapped. He had learned how to tie shoes. I want you to know something this morning. God didn't put us all in the casting out demon business. Some of us, He put in the cups of cold water business. God is not building superstars for His team. There's only one team. And there's only one star, and His name is Jesus. He's not here to build superstars. And He's not here to allow the water boy to be overlooked. We've all got our spot on the team. God and God alone is the one who decides who does what. And regardless of whatever we do in His name, unless the mighty Spirit of God works in us, and it's all for nothing. It doesn't even work. Except for the blessings and the power of Almighty God. God may have given you a talent. He had certainly given these apostles much. They had incredible power. They had incredible talents. They were going to change the world. But they needed to learn a lesson. God has only one team. And only one king. A cup of water. shouldn't surprise us this morning as we wrap up then that the most effective thing that the devil has to use against God's people is pride. After all, that's what his problem was. It's what his sin was. It, he knows what it did to him. and When he came to Eve in that very first moment of temptation that ever plagued humanity, he held that fruit up to her. Did God really say She was told then that when she eats of that tree, she would be like God. Wonder where the devil got that idea. You'll be like God and you'll know good and evil. What did he appeal to? Pride. 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 The cross, though, leaves no room for pride. The fact that God receives us messy children that we are compels us then to receive other of His children messy though they are. God's work requires God's power. And He's in charge of who He uses and what He uses them to do. And when it's bothering us because God chooses to use somebody else in a way maybe that we don't approve of, That's our pride at work. If God isn't blessing us or God isn't using us, the most common culprit is pride. I'm glad to be able to tell you this morning, though, I believe these apostles finally got that boil out of their hearts. At the end of his life, Simon Peter would write in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 5: God resists the proud. Did you get that? God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. You think Simon Peter learned to listen? I think he did. Might have took him a while. It takes us a while. But he got it. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God. And he will exalt you. At due time. Pride is sneaky. If we start confessing our sins, and we're not much inclined to do that much. But if if we did, chances are pride wouldn't be very high on any of our lists. We think of a lot of things we struggle with that we're not going to say, well, I struggle with pride. Well, let me tell you something this morning. I struggle with pride, and so do you. Want me to give you a quick example? I'm going to do it whether you want me to or not. <laughs> want a quick example? You know, you have a little fuss, a little Disagreement. Uh, you probably shouldn't be mad about it, but an hour or so at the most, husband and wives, brother and sister, neighbor across the street, coworker at work, you have a little something a little tiff, and you're mad, aggravated. Christians don't get mad, okay, aggravated thirty minutes at most, an hour. And a month later, you're still mad. Why? P-R-I-D-E. Pride. How do I know that? Because God said, be you angry and sin not. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath. So when we get mad and we stay mad in a day, in a week, in a month, or a year, and we're still mad, yeah, what's gotten in the way? We're disobeying God. And that almost always goes back to that dirty, rotten pride. What keeps us from forgiving? What keeps us from seeking reconciliation? What keeps us from just moving on? We all struggle with it. More than we like to admit. The disciples, if you'd ask them that day, is pride my problem. They'd have probably said no, no. Even while they were arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Just remember, God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. I can't think of a better message for us to start out a new year on than this one. Let's seek God's grace by humbling ourselves under His mighty hand. becoming obedient. I don't know what that means to you. Maybe for some of you, it means you need to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. I don't know what you're waiting on. You know Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. And He gives a simple message. As many as received Him... To them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to those that believe on his name. If you need to follow him in baptism, why are you waiting? If you need a church home and you believe that God intends for you to be a member at Faith Baptist Church, then maybe it's time for you to make that decision. Maybe you're just struggling. You're miserable. And you didn't realize until today that what's really happened is pride's got a hold of you. And it sucked your whole heart and soul into that little bitty vortex. It's just sucking the joy out of your life. That's what pride will do. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and He will exalt you in due time. Let's stand together, please.